A commonly heard complaint against the U.S. Congress is that lawmakers on both sides of the aisle rarely bother to read the legislation they're voting on. This week, a coalition of publishers and media industry trade associations announced an effort that makes reading itself the center of attention on Capitol Hill. Welcome to Copyright Clearance on this podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, May 19th, 2017, and I'm joined by Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, for a roundup of the week's news from around the book world. Welcome back, Andrew. Greetings, Chris. Well, a good place, and I think you would agree with me, for choosing your next good read is your local library. And this week, Andrew, you reported that a coalition of major corporations and trade associations has formed an organization to advocate for library funding in Congress. Tell us about that effort. Yeah, so last week, right after we hit the internet with our podcast, I learned that a group of eight publishers and library vendors had written a letter to Congress in support of library funding and posted an article on PublishersWeekly.com that you can read. It's up there right now. Uh, those companies included, the initial eight companies included Penguin Random House and Rosen Publishing, as well as uh, Gale Cengage, Baker & Taylor, and ProQuest. But this week, we learned that that effort has now expanded into an organized effort called the Corporate Committee for Library Investment. Uh, we'll call them the CCLI for short. This effort in just a few days now has dozens of members, including two big five publishers. Uh, Macmillan has joined Penguin Random House and a number of national trade associations, including the American Booksellers Association and the Software and Information Industry Association. Uh, in a release, uh, members of the CCLI said that they are united by a common belief that America's libraries, and I will quote here, are business-building, job-creating, workforce-preparing engines of the U.S. economy in every corner of the country. And they've formed this organization so they could tell Congress uh, exactly what those libraries do and that they should be supported. Now, as our listeners no doubt know, uh, the CCLI launches as libraries face some pretty serious threats to their funding. Most notably, the Trump administration has proposed to eliminate virtually all federal library funding uh, and the institution Museum and Library Services, which is the agency that distributes those funds to all 50 states. And even though that funding was recently saved for the year ending September 30th, the fight for the 2018 budget is now underway, and it's going to be a tough one. Uh, even though the total ask for libraries in all 50 states is only about $213 million, uh, that's just a tiny fraction in the massive bucket that is the federal budget, Trump has proposed zeroing out all that funding. So just a couple of things. I'd highlight here. The first is that anybody who wants to support this, any company organization, no matter how big or small, and you don't need to be a, a publishing or a information industry to do so, you can go to fundlibraries.org on the web uh, and sign up. And I'd just like to say, what a great story, right? I mean, no question, libraries and publishers and information groups occasionally find themselves on the opposite side of policy debates. But we all agree that libraries are fundamental to our nation and, of course, to our business. After all, the majority of library funding flows right back to the publishing and information business. And finally, one note here, too, and that's an organization that I haven't seen on the list yet that might be in the works, and that's the Association of American Publishers. Maybe the AAP is letting their members make their own calls about whether or not to participate here. Uh, and two of the big five have so far, as well as a number of indie publishers. But I think with the tension of late between AAP and the library community over some of these policy issues, it would be nice 
nice to see the AAP on there, to have, have them provide libraries at least a little cover uh, from what is really a severe threat from the Trump administration. And policy differences aside, we know that the AAP really values libraries and that publishers work very closely with libraries. In fact, in a couple of weeks at Book Expo, the AAP is going to be sponsoring some really popular programs once again that they do with librarians each year, as they do at all the major library conferences. But I can tell you, in talking with library officials and some of the major library organizations, it would mean a lot to the library community uh, if the AAP lent its voice for libraries on Capitol Hill. All right. Well, after four years in legal limbo, a copyright case on the legality of reselling ebooks, downloaded music, and other digital media files seeks a return to court. Uh, we'll have all the details with Andrew Albanese when we return in just a moment. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. Publishers Weekly Radio has the very best in book talk directly from New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. Join us every Friday for a full hour of exciting author interviews, best-selling books, and expert reports on the nuts and bolts of publishing. Every week, we make sure that you have the inside story of your favorite story. Take a listen at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Welcome back to Beyond the Book. I'm Christopher Keneally with Andrew Albanese with Publishers Weekly, and we are reviewing stories from the book world on Friday, May 19th. And Andrew, you always love a good copyright case, and this week we learned that Redigi, a digital service that allowed users to resell their iTunes files, seems to be moving toward an appeal of a court decision that crashed their business model. Yeah, that's right. As you know, it's been a while now. Actually, it's been about four years uh, since a district court effectively shut down Redigi, which, as you say, is an upstart online service that enabled consumers to resell their iTunes files. But that appeal is finally starting to simmer at the Second Circuit, and it raises a really key copyright question for the digital age, and that is, do consumers have the right to resell their lawfully acquired digital media as they can do with physical media under a section of the Copyright Act known as the Doctrine of First Sale? In his March 2013 summary judgment uh, in Capital Records versus Redigi, that's the underlying case here, uh, Judge Richard Sullivan rather emphatically said no, consumers do not have a first sale right with their iTunes files. Uh, Sullivan dubbed Redigi a clearinghouse for copyright infringement, uh, and Redigi subsequently suspended its service uh, and in 2016 entered into Chapter 11 bankruptcy after it had agreed to pay millions to settle Capital's damages claims in a stipulated judgment that was expressly contingent upon Sullivan's ruling being upheld on appeal. All right. Well, a lot of legality there, and we'll ask you to sort it out for us. So first, why has that appeal taken so long to get going, and why now? Why is it heating up? Basically, the appeal could not start until Sullivan issued a final order in the case, and for the last few years, the parties had been moving slowly toward a damages trial. Uh, but last April, Redigi negotiated a settlement in which it would agree to pay capital $3.5 million if it ultimately lost on appeal. Uh, and they did so expressly so that they could have a judgment entered and could thus get their appeal on the merits underway at the Second Circuit. 
Uh, and that was actually reflected in the judgment. It's called a stipulated judgment. And the, the damage award there was contingent on the liability finding, Sullivan's liability finding, being upheld in the appeal process. Now, this is where the case gets really interesting. And it involves some pretty bare-knuckle lawyering by Capital. After that stipulated judgment was entered, Redigi entered Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Uh, that was in August of last year. And it did so that, so that it could have protection from creditors, of which Capital is now... Technically, it's biggest one. Uh, but in April, Capital asked the bankruptcy court to convert Redigi's Chapter 11 reorganization into a Chapter 7 liquidation, arguing that Redigi is spending money on this appeal that it doesn't have. Indeed, because the company has no income at this point, it shouldn't get a Chapter 11 shield, Capital argued. It should instead be sold off and put out of its misery. Thus, if the bankruptcy court was to grant Capital's conversion motion, Redigi would basically lose the ability to appeal its copyright judgment on the merits, because it wouldn't have any business, and it wouldn't have any money to pursue it. Uh, the Capital filing, you have to admit, is a pretty slick maneuver. Uh, they agreed to a, joint, a judgment that was contingent upon a final appeal ruling, and then they undermined Redigi's ability to appeal that uh, through the bankruptcy court. And in a nutshell, that's why this appeal is heating up now. Redigi has filed a motion asking the Second Circuit to expedite oral arguments so we can potentially stave off a bankruptcy court ruling, or perhaps get the appeal in before the bankruptcy court uh, potentially kills its ability to litigate this case any further. And for capital, killing Redigi via the bankruptcy court would essentially kill the copyright case at the Second Circuit. All right. Well, so Chapter 7, Chapter 11, this is starting to sound like a story that people from the book world ought to care about. So let's get to the point here. This is a, a fascinating case around copyright, uh, one that you have taken apart and really applied it to the ebook world. So tell us more. The Redigi case has been closely watched in the publishing industry because the company, along with other players, including Amazon, uh, have filed for and gotten patents and expressed interest in creating a resale market for ebooks. Essentially, Redigi sought to create a legal digital resale solution. Users could upload their iTunes files and potentially someday their ebooks uh, to the Redigi platform. That platform then deleted the files from the owner's device, held them in cloud-based storage, and then transferred them to a buyer's device. Uh, uh, the quote-unquote used files were sold at a discount, with Redigi keeping 60% of the proceeds, passing 20% on to the seller. And notably, they held 20% in escrow for the copyright holder, which uh, they weren't legally required to do. In his 2013 ruling, Sullivan conceded that Redigi's program actually mimicked an analog resale, but he couldn't get past the fact that the system necessarily created what he called an unauthorized material reproduction. In other words, because the file migrated from one device to another, that created an illegal reproduction. So unlike me selling you my record or book uh, in which the container of the content was actually transferred, these copies were not lawfully made. My copy was moved to your device. So it's a, it's a whole other thing Sullivan held. Uh, put another way, he explained, the first sale defense is limited to material items like those records or books where the container stays the same uh, and which the copyright owner uh, put into the stream of commerce. And he also also rejected Redigi's fair use defense, which was uh, pretty key here. And I have a feeling that could loom large on appeal. All right. So this is obviously attracting a lot of attention in the media world, publishers, as well as others. And there have been a number of amicus briefs uh, filed in the case and one that pits publishers against libraries. So tell us about those and how you see things going. 
Yeah, so a number of really interesting amicus briefs here, and we'll start with the ALA, the American Library Association, who filed a joint brief with the Internet Archive. Uh, the librarians claim that Sullivan's truncated, that's their word, fair use analysis doesn't properly weigh the purpose of Redigi's alleged infringement, and if left to stand, could really harm innovation and digital library work. Uh, the brief stops short, I should note, though, of endorsing Redigi's service. What the libraries are essentially arguing is that Sullivan should have done a more detailed analysis of what Redigi was seeking to do, which is to transfer, to enable the transfer of the right of possession. Uh, and that should be viewed as a favored purpose under the Fair Use Act because, frankly, it's legal to sell your copyrighted works, the librarians argue. But they concede that this wouldn't necessarily tip the first fair use factor or mean that Redigi overall is fair use. Although the librarians do claim that the service has the same market impact as a physical distribution would. At the beginning of the transfer, the seller has a copy and the buyer does not. And at the end of that process, the buyer has a copy and the seller does not. On the other hand, in its brief, the AAP shoots down the idea of there being no market impact. AAP's brief argues that legalizing services like Redigi would be catastrophic because the secondary market made up of these cheaper yet indistinguishable used ebooks would quickly swamp the industry's primary market. And it's a really good point. Used ebooks and other digital media are perfect substitutes, right? So who would ever pay full boat for a new ebook if the same used copy was available at a discount? Uh, but I have to say the AAP seems to go a little off the rails in its brief by devoting a lot of space to arguing against the ALA and the Open Library and the Internet Archive, excuse me, and specifically the Open Library project that the Internet Archive is doing. Uh, that's a program that converts donated copies of print books to digital copies and enables libraries to lend them with some restrictions. Now, as I read the ALA brief, it raises some interesting points, but really, it's not something that I could see the court taking on in this Redigi case. I think the court would have brushed off most of the ALA brief in short order is not terribly relevant here. But the AA brief taken with the ALA brief really makes this issues the issues there seem a lot more interesting and in my mind could really increase the chances that the Second Circuit might actually address the Open Library Project. Uh, I think the AP probably would have been wise not to take the ALA's bait here uh, and instead just you know stayed remain laser focused on the Redigi case. Now, there are a number of other fascinating briefs to hear, and I should note one from a group of law professors who argue that Sullivan got it wrong. The material reproduction doesn't occur when my file goes from my device to yours. It actually occurs when the song is coded into the MP3 file. In 2013, James Grimmelman wrote a fascinating piece for PW on this that involves Star Trek. So if you're a Trek fan, you definitely want to check it out. Uh, and you can find that on the PW site by uh, searching Grimmelman and Redigi. That piece should come right up. But to put a bow on all of this, um, I just don't see digital first sale. Personally, myself, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I'd be surprised if the Second Circuit extended the first sale doctrine to cover licensed digital files. Uh, that said, I think the ALA rightly points out that Sullivan's fair use analysis does beg for some more detail. And I could see the case being remanded for that purpose, not unlike with the Georgia State University e-reserves e case, where the court mostly upheld Judge Arinda Evans's decision, except for they wanted more detail and a rebalancing of her fair use uh, analysis. So stay tuned. It's a very fascinating case, and there is more to come. Well, uh, used ebooks may be the perfect substitute for the originals, but there's only one Andrew Albanese. And thanks for joining me every Friday on Beyond the Book. 
My pleasure, as always. Coming next on Beyond the Book, how do women fare when it comes to publishing their scientific research? In principle, science should be indifferent to gender, but in practice, are women working on a level playing field? Professor Cassidy Sugimoto of Indiana University Bloomington examines the ways in which knowledge producers consume and disseminate scholarship. As she sees it, gender-related achievement gaps persist in science, and perhaps most critical one related to impact factor. This is the currency of the realm. This is what establishes, for many researchers, the quality of their work and the quality of individual papers, but also the quality of them as scholars. Now, for better or for worse, um, this persists in, in scholarship. Now, there are two different indicators, as you mentioned, that tend to be the most prominent. Now, citations are for a particular work. That's the receipt of your work by other scientists who then use it in their work and cite it. The journal impact factor is a different kind of measurement. Now, many people have derided this measurement and suggest that it shouldn't be used to evaluate an individual scholar, and I would be in that camp. But it's still an interesting indicator of a selection bias. It demonstrates when people are able to get into a journal, to publish in a journal of a particular level of reputation and a particular acceptance rate. Gender Gaps in Science, next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center, a global leader in content management, discovery, and document delivery solutions. Through its relationships with those who use and create content, CCC and its subsidiaries RightsDirect and Ixis drive market-based solutions that accelerate knowledge, power publishing, and advance copyright. Beyond the Book co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Join us again soon on Beyond the Book.